And then my brother gets my attention and he starts to point across the street where the car had landed after spinning about 70 feet. And he's pointing at a body and he says, hey, man, he said, I I think I see somebody lying down on the pavement over there and um, it doesn't look like they're moving. So instantly it dawns on me the magnitude of what I had just done. There was no time to process anything because within seconds, as you can imagine, lights and sirens are everywhere rushing to the scene. And so the policemen are on the scene and they're talking to me and they, they take my brother a few feet away to talk to him. About two minutes into that interview, that officer had confirmed to me what I had intuitively known to be true, which was the person who was lying on the pavement had died. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, Tribe Leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober Podcast, episode 132. My name is Janet Gorond. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we help people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and actually thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last six years, we've helped hundreds of people to do just that. Now, many of those people found Tribe Sober by doing one of our challenges. Our alcohol-free challenges are usually a month or 66 days long, But in August, we did our very first five-day sober sprint, and it worked so well that people are messaging me saying that they've been sober ever since that sprint. But they're still coming to the next one because now they want to be a cheerleader. How awesome is that? So our next sober sprint starts on Monday. If you're listening to this podcast on the release date, if you're listening to it way after that date, then just check our website, tribesober.com, and click on Sprint. So our next Sober Sprint runs from October the 17th to the 21st. That's Monday to Friday. Our Sober Sprints are absolutely free, and they're a bit like a sobriety boot camp. The action all takes place in a Facebook group where we offer daily tasks and training sessions as well as all-day support from the Tribe Sober team. We already have 800 people in the group, so the community support is already fantastic. So come and join us in the Facebook Sober Sprinters group. You can find the group and ask to join, or you can just go to tribesober.com and hit the Sober Sprint button. It's absolutely free, so why not do it? right now. So let's get to this week's podcast guest. If you've ever had a few drinks and then got behind the wheel of your car, I guarantee this episode is going to send a shiver down your spine. It's a story of tragedy and redemption. It's a story which emphasizes the fact that our whole future can change in a split second. My guest this week is Martin Lockett. 
a guy who made two bad decisions. He decided to drink and drive and then to jump a red light. Two people died and Martin spent nearly 20 years in prison for manslaughter. His whole life was defined by this traumatic incident that ended two lives and changed his forever. I began the conversation by asking Martin to take us back to his early life, to his childhood. Absolutely. So, first of all, it's a pleasure to be here. So thank you so much for having me. So I grew up in Portland, Oregon in the 80s. And I'll say it's vastly different today than it was in the 80s, as you can imagine. There was, you know, gangs and crime and prostitution and drive-by shootings every night. It was essentially a war zone. But I had the good fortune of having two loving parents who did everything they could to shield my three siblings and me from all of that chaos. So, for instance, my dad would have us enrolled in Little League baseball and Pop Warner football and wrestling and Cub Scouts and all these these wholesome activities. And that worked until I got to high school. And so when I got to high school, like most kids who are struggling to find their identity and gain independence and kind of step into their own, you know, I was incredibly shy. And so basically I was I was at anybody's mercy who would accept me. And so this led to me kind of gravitating towards some other kids who actually happened to live in my neighborhood, but I had never met. And I, now that I reflect on it, I think it's because my parents did everything they could to keep us from these kids. But nonetheless, this became my hangout crew and we did all sorts of things teenagers should not you know, be doing, but, but still did. And so this led to my first drink of alcohol. And I remember I was about 14 years old and we were at a party and somebody ended my brother and I have a twin brother and they had handed us a couple beers and we're looking at each other thinking there's no way we can drink these. Mom and dad would kill us. Right. We, we weren't raised this way. But if we knew we were if we knew if we were going to be accepted by this teenagers, then we had to do what they expected us to do. So I remember I took that first drink and I remember my chest heated up and then all my inhibitions came down. And I could finally come out of this shy, timid shell, talk to people without fumbling over my words. And I could talk to girls without breaking out in a cold sweat. I mean, this was this was awesome. This was this was a miracle drug to me. And it's a magic potion. It's a magic potion. And so finally I could be the Martin that was stuck inside, who was afraid to come out and just be able to enjoy these these social settings. And so that was the beginning of my drinking that started off just socially and, and more casually. And over the next couple of years, it really took a turn for the worse and became full-blown alcoholism. And how old were you when the accident happened? So the crash was years later. I was 24 years old. So at 16 is when is when I started to drink. I would literally drink morning, noon, and night. So I would drink before I would go to school, during my lunch breaks, and after school. And at this point, my parents were, so my dad worked the swing shift. So from like 2 p.m. to midnight. So he wasn't there. And my my mom, her health has started to deteriorate because she had been sick our whole lives. And so she could never work. She stayed home to take care of us. But her health has started to deteriorate. So there was no way she could manage two teenage boys who, you know, were running the streets and getting into all sorts of mischief. For me, I'll tell you why 
it went from casual drinking to full-blown alcoholism. So as we're navigating our identity, and so it's very normal in the in the stages of what you know, psychosocial development. You know, they say it's very normal for us to try on different identities when we hit, you know, adolescence to figure out what our role is going to be in this world, how we're going to navigate society. Who are we? What do we believe in? What do we value? What do we cherish? And so as you're doing that, it's a, it's a very normal thing. However, for me, I was stuck in an identity in an identity crisis. I never could fully step into who I was. And so, again, on one hand, I would hang out with my friends in the neighborhood and I would wear the baggy gangster clothes and, you know, hang around the gang members and, and, and talk the talk and walk the walk. But then I had a job after after school. I would go work at an ice cream parlor because my parents were very adamant about us, you know, working part time jobs to understand the value of, you know, hard earned money and things like that. And so I got a job at an ice cream parlor and all of my coworkers were white. And I remember, so after work, we would go hang out and shoot pool. And I would bring a spare change of, of, of clothes that was, you know, the, the Tommy Hill figure, the Ralph Lauren polo, the, the more preppy look, because that's what they wore. I would change my vernacular to, to, to fit how they would speak, because that's what I needed to do to gain their acceptance. And so I'm navigating between two worlds where, if I'm being honest, I never felt fully comfortable in either one. This caused a deep conflict within me because I didn't know how to navigate that challenge and cope with that effectively. Alcohol became became my 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 way of coping. And so that's when I really began to rely on alcohol to get me through. And so that's why it really manifested into something something really terrible. I was just thinking about your your twin. Was he suffering from this identity crisis as well? So no, we're twins, and we have a lot of similarities. So like we were attached at the hip, as you can imagine. So when we started out on this this journey of you know drinking and skipping school, and we even started to steal cars and joyride and things like that, he was right with me. But as we got older, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, he started to think about his future more. And so he, he he was great with his hands. He would always be working on the car with my dad or working on an appliance or something like that. So he went on to become a, a carpenter. He's been doing that for like 25, 26 years now. And he loves it. That's his, you know, that's his that's his job. But um, no, he didn't suffer from this identity crisis like I did. Right. I always mm-hmm. felt that I was inadequate as far as society saw me. That posed a real a real threat to my identity and my self-esteem and my self-concept. Right. For him, you know, he was fine just being who he was. People could either like him or, or, or hate him. It didn't matter to him. He was not he was not that susceptible to what people thought about him, where I totally was, obviously. Wow, so it's so interesting, isn't it, that twins could be be so different after you've had the same the same upbringing. I mean, you knew that you had you were addicted to alcohol, I presume, although you were still very young. Did you think about getting help or trying to stop, or was it just not on your radar? Really, you thought, well, this is how how it's going to be. So I knew that I knew that what I was doing was not healthy. But I would always kind of ration or minimize my drinking and the consequences of it because there were a lot of things I could point to in my life that were going well. So I, I, yeah. I worked a job. I was taking uh, college classes in the evening to become a nurse. 
right? And I did reasonably well in college. I had moved out of my parents' house and had found a girlfriend and we lived together and I paid my bills and I, you know, I, I saved up $5,000 and got my first car and got my license and paid my registration and paid my insurance. So there were things in my life that I could point to and say, this is not so bad. I know it's not great, yeah. but it's not so bad, mm-hmm. right? I'm, I'm, I'm managing is what we all think because externally, yeah. if you're looking from the outside, looking in, you're looking at my life and you think that I'm doing okay, right? Because nobody knew, except for at that point, my girlfriend that I was living with, nobody knew how bad my alcoholism had gotten because I wasn't living at yeah. home with my parents anymore. And so, you know, they knew I drank, but they had no idea the depths of my drinking and why. Frankly, it wasn't until I later published Mm -hmm. my memoir from prison that my sister had read it. And she said, Martin, for the first time, I feel like I actually know my brother, you know, and we grew up in the same household. I mean, this is is my sister. But, you know, I didn't let on about what was underlying my need to drink so heavily and, and, and so frequently. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I know what you mean, that if you if you manage to hold your life together, you think, well, I'm OK. Right. <laughs> I'm not like these people that lose everything. You know, I'm fine. So you stay in denial, don't exactly. you? Exactly. Take us to that night then. I guess we'll have to have to go there. We do have to go there. So and I remember it so vividly. So it was early in the morning. I had kissed my girlfriend goodbye so I could go to work. I lived in Vancouver, Washington, which is just about a half hour from Portland, Oregon. So I would cross the bridge and I worked at a warehouse in Portland. And I remember we had gotten off work early because the holiday it was New Year's Eve of 2003 to paint the picture. So, of course, everybody's making plans to celebrate that night and, and all of that. So we had left work early. And as we're we're wrapping up, my boss had joked with us and said, now you guys go out and have a good time tonight, but please don't let me wake up and see you on the front page. Right. And of course, we all laughed it off and, you know, we clock out. But as you can see, nearly 20 years later, I've never forgotten those prophetic words. So I left work at about 1130 and I headed straight to the liquor store where I bought a fifth of gin. I then proceeded to my parents' house to hang out with my twin brother because that's where he was living at the time. And so I get to my parents' house. I hang out with my twin brother. I drink the alcohol over the course of two or three hours. And then he and I had made plans for later that night to attend a friend's house party, a guy we had gone to high school with. And so after I drank that fifth of gin, I then went back to the store where I bought four 24-ounce cans of beer. So if you're doing a quick math on that, that is 96 ounces of beer that I consumed between the hours of five and eight o'clock. So I drink that alcohol. And then my brother and I, we go to another friend's house at about eight o'clock that night because we didn't want to get to the party too early. So we get to that friend's house. The three of us hang out. We drink a pint of Hennessy alcohol. It's now about 11 o'clock. So we exit his apartment to go to the party. And here's warning number two. As we're walking out the door, his mother from the kitchen says, now, you guys go out, do your thing. But please, please be careful tonight. Of course, we said, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. You know, obviously, we had no intentions of being careful that night. So we get to the party. We bring in the new year. We have loads of fun. We drink more alcohol, of course. We exit the party at about 12, 15 a.m. We get into my vehicle, the three of us, and I take my friend home without incident, 
get back onto the freeway to take my brother home. And at this point, all I'm thinking about is how exhausted I am because I still had another half hour to get him home. So I just wanted to get him home so I could go to my house and go to sleep. So on the freeway, I began to elevate my speed to about 80 miles an hour. And this makes my brother nervous. He says, hey, man, you know, you should slow down. You know, the police are out, you know, it being a holiday and all. And I thought, you know, well, that makes sense. So I went ahead and slowed down just to appease him. So we exit the freeway and we're now driving in a residential area. And again, I began to pick up my speed. Now it's about 60 miles an hour. And this time he starts to yell at me, slow down before we crash. And I snap back at him. Calm down. I know what I'm doing. I got this. I've done this 100 times. But just to keep him quiet, I went ahead and slowed down. So we continue to drive and I'm just at the intersection where I'm going to drop him off at our parents' house. And then he suddenly realizes he's all out of cigarettes. So he says, hey, man, let's go up the street so I can get some cigarettes. I'm all out. And in my mind, I'm thinking, great. You know, here's one more stop that I don't want to have to make. So we continue to drive for a couple blocks. And then about two blocks from that point, there's another intersection. And the, the story we need to get to is just beyond the intersection. And I'm looking up at the light and the light is clearly yellow. And as intoxicated as I was, I knew there was no way I was going to make this light. But it didn't matter because in a split second, I had made up my mind. I'm not going to wait. I'm going right through because as driving impaired, you become much more aggressive and your judgment is obviously the worst it could possibly be. So I immediately punched the gas and I'm almost tunnel vision looking straight forward. I don't see anything to the right or left of me. And I accelerate quickly. I'm in a newer model vehicle. And within seconds, just boom. I mean, just this earth shattering crash. And I remember the airbag envelops my face and my car comes to a slow winding halt. And I immediately look to my right to see if my brother's okay. And he's moving. So I'm somewhat relieved because he's alive and I'm alive, obviously. So this is good. And at the same time, a guy comes rushing up to the driver's side door frantically. Are you guys okay? Are you guys okay? Yeah, we're okay. I tell him. And I step out of my vehicle and my first instinct was not to go check on the people I had just hit, sadly, but rather to assess the damage on my vehicle. Because again, I'm very superficial. I'm very self-absorbed. And this is my prized possession. This was my ultimate status symbol of success. A nice car with nice rims. I worked hard for it. And I'm devastated because I'm now looking at my prized possession in a heap of crumpled metal. And then my brother gets my attention. And he starts to point across the street where the car had landed after spinning about 70 feet. And he's pointing at a body. And he says, hey, man, he said, I, I think I see somebody lying down on the pavement over there. And um, it doesn't look like they're moving. So instantly it dawns on me the magnitude of what I had just done. There was no time to process anything because within seconds, as you can imagine, lights and sirens are everywhere rushing to the scene. And so. The policemen are on the scene and they're talking to me and they, they take my brother a few feet away to talk to him. About two minutes into that interview, that officer had confirmed to me what I had intuitively known to be true, which was the person who was lying on the pavement had died. And he informed me that another was being driven by ambulance to the hospital just blocks away. So I'm placed under arrest. I'm put into the back of the cruiser. We head downtown for processing. And from the back seat, I'm listening to the police radio because there's a lot of chatter about the crash, as you can imagine. 
about 10 minutes into that ride, it comes over the police radio that unbeknownst to me, there was another passenger who was in the vehicle and had been pronounced dead at the scene. And so I asked the officer from the back, from the back seat, I said, excuse me, sir, did I just hear that correctly? Did, did they just say someone else was in that vehicle that didn't make it? He said, unfortunately, yes. So there's now two people dead, one person with life-threatening injuries fighting for his life. And then on the other hand, I'm also keenly aware of the, the sentencing laws in the state of Oregon that are mandatory minimum sentencing laws that require, no ifs, ands, or buts about it, that require 10 years flat, day for day. You cannot earn a single day off for good behavior, working the job, getting an education, 10 years flat for a DUI manslaughter. And now I have two of them. And so I know that at 24 years old, I'm going to prison for about 20 years. And so to say in that, I mean, that was to say that was the worst moment of my life, that that was sheer and utter devastation would be a gross understatement. There was no way to to, to adequately characterize what that moment felt like. And just a, a split second decision, you know, like those lights. I mean, I've I've done that so many times and, and I've done it completely sober. You know, I mean, everybody just jumps the light now and again, you know, just tries to get through on the amber and it's it's just tragic. But yeah, I'm sure the alcohol uh, didn't help, you know, that judgment call, did it? 100%. I mean, I'll you. say when I was drink when I was when I would drive sober, I mainly did the speed limit. Let's I mean, let's be honest, we all, you know, but I mainly did the speed limit. I always stopped at stop signs. I certainly never would run a red light while I was sober. But again, when you're intoxicated, obviously your judgment is the first thing to go. I mean, never mind your your motor skills and reactivity time being off and all those things, you know, but your judgment is just is just severely off. And so that split second decision under the influence cost two beautiful people their lives and, and me the next 17 and a half years in prison and my family heartache and oh. devastation and their families heartache and devastation. I mean, this is such a ripple effect that you can never yeah. fully grasp until it happens. Yeah. And those people, did, did you say they worked uh, in recovery? So, so here's, yeah. so here's, here's when I found that out. So three days later, I'm in my cell and I'm just minding my own business. And I noticed that someone has slid the, the statewide newspaper underneath my door. And I couldn't understand why, because I didn't ask to see a newspaper. Right. But I figured there must be something in there for me to read. And so I pick it up and I begin to thumb through the paper and I see my picture on the front page of one of the sections. And with each paragraph that I read that morning for the first time in days, my faceless victims became people. And these people had an, an incredible story, as you just alluded to. And so what I learned was these people were active in their recovery. They had like 16 years clean and they were volunteers with Mothers Against Drunk Driving, no less. They would watch women's kids so that they could attend AA and NA meetings. They were very beloved and celebrated in the recovery community. And in fact, believe it or not, that very night that this this tragedy happened, they were returning home from a clean and sober New Year's Eve party when they were struck and killed by a drunk driver. And so the, the columnist 
had talked about the irony of that. He called it a palpable irony that these people would lose their lives to the very person they would have done anything to help. Right. And then he said something at the end that changed the course of my life for the next 17 and a half years and beyond, even to this day. And he said, quote, perhaps the person they will have ended up helping the most is the man who's charged with killing them. And it was it was such a profound statement, but I couldn't fully appreciate the value in what he had just said, because I still knew that I was going to prison for about 20 years and I'm still responsible for two beautiful lives no longer being here. So I couldn't fully understand how this situation was supposed to help me. But I knew it was a statement that I could not ignore. And so I would literally for the next six or seven months, I would meditate on that phrase. I would hear it in my head when I would wake up. I would hear it throughout the day. I would hear it when I would go to sleep. I would pray about it, trying to figure out how I was supposed to apply those words to my life. And then it finally came to me. I tell people it didn't come from some thunderous voice from the heavens. It was not revealed in some vivid dream, but rather in the firm conviction that the only way this tragedy will not be in vain The only way it will not remain a simple tragedy is if I carry on these people's legacies. If I literally devote the rest of my life doing everything I possibly can to ensure that something like this never happens again. And I didn't know what that would look like. I didn't know how that was going to manifest in my life, but I knew that's what I needed to do. Right. That was the beginning of the amends making process, if you will. And so in that moment, I committed to that. That was when things started to unfold for me. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. So, so talk to us a bit about your, your time in prison. I knew I needed to get an education, right? And so I immediately applied to be a tutor. I got hired and then I could start taking college courses. So guys saw that I was consistent in the way that I conducted myself. And because of that, I gained their respect. So I had the respect of opposing gang members, right? I had the respect of, you know, the the, the guys who uh, were the so-called shot callers, right? And because they saw that I was consistent. You have some guys who come into prison and a part of them wants to change, but they feel that that will make them look weak. And so they have to join a gang or hang with these guys that are kind of navigate, trying to navigate between two different worlds within this prison culture. And that never serves them well, because if guys see that you're not serious about who you are, then you become a target. Right. They also love to recruit young guys. And so when I got there, of course, there were guys who were asking me, oh, man, who do you run with? You know, what gang do you belong to? And I'm just like, dude, that's not me. I'm just here to do my time. But that's interesting, Martin, isn't it? That you you found your identity. Exactly. <laughs> you knew how you were. Exactly. Well, I mean, it took another tragedy for me to really hone in on this purpose but i knew i knew that this is this is where i had to put my energy it just had to happen and so with that i delved into my education and i at the time they were offering one college course at a time that we could take per term so i would do that and i figured if i take enough courses i guess they'll give me a degree at some point i don't really know how this works right Fortunately, I was able to meet an amazing, incredible woman just a year into this sentence. 
we live together today. So she did the next 16 years yeah. with me. And she, so she asked me, she said, well, how do you want to spend your time? And I said, well, I want to become a drug and alcohol counselor. I don't know how I can do it or if I can do it from here, but that's what I want to do. And she's one of those people that she has the biggest heart you'll ever, you'll, you'll ever find in a person. She hangs up the phone. She goes to the internet. She spends the next four hours researching how one can get an education from prison because there's no funding. There's no government funding or any sanctioned programs that allow you to do it. You have to do it independently and you have to finance it yourself. And so she, she comes up four hours later with a few different universities that still offered correspondence courses through the mail because we don't have any Internet access in prison. And so everything has to be papered through the mail and things like that. Very old fashioned. But we found a couple universities. They were very expensive. She said, well, how about I set aside $50 every paycheck? And when we build up enough, then we'll get you a class. And you still do the classes you're doing in there, but this will expedite the process. So with that, I started to take other classes from other major universities outside. And then my dad, unfortunately, passed away three years into my sentence. But with that, I was able to get insurance policy money, his pension that he had worked his whole life to build. And so then I said, well, what better way to to honor him and his hard work than to invest in my own future and my education? So then my I started taking two or three classes, sometimes four classes at a time through these universities. And I ended up with an associate's degree in 2010. And then I got a bachelor's in sociology in 2013. And then I went on to get a master's in psychology in 2016 all with the support of my amazing fiance who did all the behind the scenes work. She had to coordinate with these universities and the advisors and go to Amazon and order my textbooks and, and order my final exams and midterm exams because they had to be proctored through the education department at whatever prison I was at. And I was moving from two or three prisons, you know, throughout this. So there's a lot of coordination that needed to be done. There's no way I could have done on my own. And so thankfully, she was willing to do all the heavy lifting, got me to that point. And then I went on to a, a substance abuse treatment program within the prison, one of the few. So let me just say this. So in the United States, about 80 percent of those who are incarcerated, both federally and from state to state, are in there for certain some drug and or alcohol related offense, whether they were intoxicated at the time or they were committing robbery to get money to get drugs, or they admitted they had a drug problem, 80%, right? In the state of Oregon, only about 5% of the incarcerated population had access to a substance abuse treatment program. Just ridiculous. Fortunately, I was one of those ones because they had seen how much work I had put into my education with the aspiration of becoming a counselor. They wanted to support me in that endeavor. So I went through this intensive seven month, five day a week drug and alcohol treatment program as a participant, learned a lot about the difference between sobriety and recovery, right? And things like that. And then I was able to intern and I would mentor the guys and I would run the groups and I would accumulate all these clinical hours toward a state certification. So I got the state certification as a substance abuse counselor in 2019. And then I released a couple of years later, just last year in, in 2021. Wow. What, what an amazing story, Martin. You know what it makes me think of a little bit? Do you, have you heard of Nelson Mandela? A little bit. I've, I've, heard, I've heard a little bit about that guy. Yeah. 
You know that he was sent to prison for 27 years for being a freedom fighter, basically. But that's another story. But he used that time to study. He did indeed. And all the people with him, they studied. And it must have kept you sane, you know. And you you obviously had amazing drive and determination to make something of your life after that disaster. The human spirit and the human tenacity and resiliency, like, I think we don't, all of us, any of us, I think we never fully understand what we're capable of, how resilient we actually are, how adaptable we are until we are placed in a situation such as that. Right. In the famous words of of Viktor Frankl, you know, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but he said, once you understand that your, your, your physical circumstances are not going to change, then you have to change yourself. Yeah. And and, I th- I th- and he said he said that from Auschwitz exactly. from concentration, camp. which was a bit more harsh than the circumstances I found myself in. I think once you once you commit to a purpose, once you commit to a cause, and no matter what tragedy that may have befallen you or or whatever circumstances you find yourself in, no matter how adverse they are, I think if you find a way to channel that energy into making that somehow purposeful. In that, it has to it has to involve serving other people. I firmly believe that. Yeah. In yeah. fact, Abraham yeah. Maslow, famed, renowned psychologist who did the pyramid, the hierarchy of human mm-hmm. needs. And at the top of it, he had self-actualization, which was at the time, any way that you can fulfill your fullest potential in whatever capacity you're yeah. seeking, right? So if it's being the best yeah. baseball player or basketball player or mom or a, a carpenter or whatever, then that's what you do to self-actualize. But later, before yeah. he passed away, he actually added to that and said the only way that people can truly, fully reach their greatest potential is when they are of service to other people. It has to include yeah. other people. And so yeah. I, I tried to live by yeah. that uh, throughout that seven yeah. and a half and that, years. That's what I love about sobriety and the work that I do, because it, it enables you to connect with your purpose. Because if we're drinking all the time, we're, we're not connected with ourselves. Never mind, you know, what our purpose is. Right. Because I, I say to people, you know, even if alcohol doesn't destroy you, it will prevent you from reaching your potential. Exactly. And, you know, look at you. Imagine... I mean, I'd never say what you went through was a blessing, but if you'd carried on drinking your head off, you know, and become a hardcore alcoholic, you wouldn't be sitting there at 40 something or however old you are with this these beautiful life ahead of you, actually, would you? That is very so, true. It's very true. Life is very interesting. It is. <laughs> I wanted to ask you if you've been able to forgive yourself for that night. So that is a great question. I appreciate when people ask me that. So I have now, but it was an arduous, long journey to get to this point. So I'll say for the first three to four years of my sentence, no, I couldn't fully forgive myself. And what that looked like is for the month of December, the entire month of December, I found myself in a state of depression and self-loathing and self-condemnation. I would literally relive, I would force myself almost to relive every vivid detail of that day and night leading up to the tragic crash because I felt in some weird way that that was me honoring my victims because I refused to forget what happened. But what that led to was a state of misery. I remember like, you know, I would, I wasn't going out to work out. I wasn't going out to play sports. I wasn't my normal, you know, kind of gregarious self. I, I was just, I, I was, I was miserable. 
So, you know, I forced myself to, to live through that for the first three or four years. But then I said, you know what? I am not honoring this mission and this promise that I had, you know, told the family members at my sentencing and I told the media and my family, I was not fully honoring that because the energy, we only get so much energy in a day and we get to choose how we're going to, how we're going to allocate that energy. Right. And I was choosing to put that energy into this utter state of misery for an entire month out of the year. Because I was doing that, I was not able to channel that energy into this cause, right? I was robbing myself of the ability to, to really maximize, you know, the time that I had to thrust myself into this calling, to learn everything I could about addiction, to be able to help those, the younger guys around me who had no sense of direction and being influenced to join this gang or join that gang. Later, I was able to start to make some inroads with those guys once they saw how I conducted myself and they would seek me out and they would talk to me about really heavy stuff. They would talk to me about childhood trauma, right, which was never a safe thing to talk about in prison, right, because who wants to be vulnerable? But they knew that they could trust me once I had proven myself. But that could not happen until I allowed myself, made myself Stop putting myself through this agony, right? And say, if I'm going to truly honor this mission and this cause and, and have these people from wherever they are look down on me and be proud of what I'm doing, then I have to fully commit to this. I have to fully give my all the energy I have to this to this cause and this purpose. And so once I once I kind of looked at it in that way, like I was dishonoring them, even though I thought I was honoring them by not forgetting and punishing myself essentially. Once I found that, that actually honoring them is to not do that and to be able to fully give myself to this, that's when I was I was able to kind of, you know, uh, really forgive myself and and allow myself to break free of that bondage and to thrust all of my energy into into this cause. So when you came out of jail, so talk to me about that. I mean, everything was different. Everything. <laughs> what, was, what did you notice? First? Everything was different. Uh, the fact that cars could park themselves and that <laughs> phones are basically computers. Because when I went in, if you had a camera on your phone, like you were so special, right? Like, like we had the little, I had the little Nokia, you know, push button phone. That was my cell phone. Clothes, just culturally people, you know, were wearing more baggy clothes when I went in. Now everything is skinny jeans and, 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 and tight fitted clothes and just, you know, I mean, it was a huge adaptation, but mainly technologically, that was where I mean, I hadn't even had an email address before I went to prison. I, I didn't email. What is that? Right. This whole social media thing and, and people building platforms and the fact that there's a recovery community online that you can tap into and be a part of. I mean, that's just that's just amazing. And so, yes, thankfully, my loving fiance, she spent the first three weeks. So I, I was in Oregon when I got out and I stayed with my, my family in Oregon for the first six months. But she she spent the first three weeks with me. She flew over from Pennsylvania and spent the first three weeks with me and walked me through all the technology, how to download an app. Every Every time you go into an app, you have to create a username and a password. And I'm doing this. And she's like, Martin, you better start writing these down. You're going <laughs> you're gonna, to you're gonna forget which one. And I didn't realize there was like, you know, 50 different usernames and passwords and everything. And then, you know, what you have to be uh, uh, aware of that there's scams and, and text messages and, and emails that look legitimate, but they're not. They just want your information. And 
it was just so much like I remember for the first week I was so overwhelmed and at the end of the day I would be physically drained and I hadn't you know go running or anything like that but just absorbing all the stimuli because in prison everything is drab right there's not even a lot of colors it's gray and blue and and you get out and like there's colors and stimuli and you go into grocery stores and there's like 50 choices of cereal and 30 choices of deodorant and even just having to make those choices was taxing because I, I it must have been exhausting. I hadn't had to do that for 17 and a half years. And so I, no, I had no become choice. conditioned to only yeah. happen to fill out a little commissary sheet where I had five different choices of an item. Now I have 50. And so mm-hmm. I had to pace myself. And she had to do a lot of those making those choices for, for things in the beginning because it was just too much to absorb, if I'm being honest. What a culture shock, eh? Indeed. Because what we'd been learning over, what, 17 years or so, you know, gradually you suddenly had to learn all that in three weeks. Right. Talk about a crash course. Very, very much a crash course. <laughs> and, but I, I've, I've been able to, you know, I'll be honest with you, about six months before I got out, I started to be a little fearful that maybe life was going to be boring being sober because I had not been <laughs> I had not been in the free world and sober for how many years, mm-hmm. right? Since I was like 14. Mm-hmm. And so a part of me was was a little apprehensive about that. But let me just say that I have lived my absolute best, most fulfilling, beautiful life since I have been out and and have done it sober. I have gone skydiving, I've gone surfing, I've gone rock climbing. I've taken a cruise to the Bahamas. I've been to Las Vegas. I've been to Washington, D.C. I've been to Philly and Baltimore. I like I just we have a swimming pool. I'm taking swimming lessons at 43, learning how to swim for the first time. We just put a swimming pool in our backyard. I'm so excited to do that. Life could not be more glorious and beautiful. And the fact that that I can remember what I did the next day when I wake up is an awesome thing. Right. It really is. So. It's, it's just really a blessing. It's so wonderful to see you full of life and happiness. And you've got a beautiful future ahead of you, I'm sure. Thank you. Interesting what you said about the recovery world online, because uh, I got sober seven years ago. Congratulations. And there was only AA, really. Right. Uh, so, you know, I trotted along to AA, but I didn't really like it much. You know, I went to quite a hardcore meeting and, you know, they were all drinking in the morning and they'd lost their you know families and and it was and I was just you know drinking a bottle of wine a night and I thought oh I'm not so bad right yeah it, it, it can <laughs> so have that effect I, c- I couldn't find my people you know right. so but eventually I did find my people because thank goodness everything's online but it it is relatively new it's uh, I think the last decade really the recovery movement I mean we talk about the modern recovery movement now and it's post AA really right and it's more positive and uplifting and inspiring than I think you know it used to be the the AA approach although it's helped millions of people but things are changing and thanks to the internet we can uh, you know we we at Tribe Sober we have um, we used to do face-to-face workshops and now we do them on Zoom so you know we've got people from all over the world and podcasting helps tremendously as well so uh, it's very exciting the way it's all changed absolutely 
Talk, talk to us a bit about your life apart from the skydiving and the swimming pool and all the glamorous things. <laughs> I know that you're a very hardworking uh, gentleman as well. Talk to us about the the work you do. Yes, ma'am. So I, I got a job remotely as a substance abuse counselor, and I also work on the suicide prevention line. So I talk to people at, at their lowest point, and I'm able to... Um, you know, just to be able to give them enough hope to get through the day and then obviously connect them with mental health resources in their community, whether it be online or in person, free, insurance based, whatever the case. We have a slew of resources we can offer people. We talk to young people on the youth line. We talk to seniors on the senior loneliness line. We talk to military personnel, you name it. And we have a line for each of these 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 people. And and then um, so I'm able to, to, to help people get connected with substance abuse resources. That's my nine to five job. And then outside of that, I speak at DUI victim impact panels uh, throughout the country. So I, I first recorded my video when I was still inside about my story. And it was widely circulated throughout the United States when the pandemic happened because nobody was meeting in person. And so and so it, it got a lot of momentum. It's created some opportunities for me to speak since I've been out. And um, so I've, I've been flown into a couple places to speak, which was a real honor. I'm setting up um, some speaking events here. I've got one next month down in Philadelphia to talk to young people um, who are struggling with mental health. And I'm going to be speaking to some schools this year. Uh, right before prom night when everybody wants to go out and young kids will have the propensity of making that one bad choice, that one night that's supposed to be one of the greatest nights of their lives and can turn into the worst day of their life. And so I'm set up to speak there as well. And so I've, I've had opportunities to speak uh, remotely and in person. And I'm always honored when I do and people come up to me afterwards and just really thank me for sharing. And most of the audiences that I speak to they're first time DUI offenders. So in, in, in the United States, usually is, if it's your first offense, then you go through a series of classes. You may not have your license for, you know, like a 90 day period until you complete these courses. But part of that is you have to go to a DUI victim impact panel. You have to hear from people that this has happened to. And usually they're hearing from victims who have lost loved ones to DUI drivers. My story is rare in that sense, because a lot of people, once they've gone through something as difficult as this, they just want to move on with their life. They don't want to yeah, have yeah. to relive it and retell it. And and, and, and I understand that. But for me, yeah. the, the reason why I'm compelled to do this work is because I put myself in the shoes of my victims, the family members. And I ask myself, if somebody had done this to my family member, what would I want the outcome to be? Would I want them to go to prison for... 17 and a half years, get out and just go on with the rest of their life as though this never happened? Or would I want them to learn everything they can about addiction and, and recovery and then get out of prison and do what they can to help other people so they don't follow in these same catastrophic footsteps? So they can prevent other families from feeling this, 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 this agony and this, this devastation. Obviously, I would want the latter. So if I would want that for somebody who had done this to my family, what excuse do I have to not do that? Yeah, and your your story is so powerful, Martin. I must admit, I felt a bit, you know, 
asking you to tell that story again, like, you know, it's going to just bring it all up. But, um, you know, you're, you're brave and, and it's having an impact. I'm sure it's having a, a huge impact. Thank you so much. And, you know, I, I can understand people wanting to just forget it and move on. And, you know, if you'd done that, it would be totally understandable. But but you've really been brave to keep, you know, reliving this every time you tell that story. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask you, because, you know, I'm here in South Africa where there's, you know, huge social problems and 66% of our youth are unemployed and, you know, they have no hope, they don't know what to do, they have no jobs, no future. And I just wondered what you'd say to, to young people in that, because because obviously here, you know, it's a bit like where you grew up, you know, there's gangs and there's drugs and there's everything that comes with, with poverty what would you say? How do you give hope to people like that? Right. So I, I know that, that everything you see around you, right, conveys to you that this is all it's ever going to be. So why even try? Right. But I am telling you that there is so much to life that is there waiting for you that you cannot see it in the moment. I understand that. But it is there for you if you stay in the fight. If you give yourself a fighting chance, right, if you don't give up and don't just succumb to the pressures around you and thinking, well, this is all it's ever going to be and this is all I ever see. So I may as well just just, you know, fall in line because I'm telling you, you you are robbing yourself of the potential that is there for you, that you can have a life that you that you really actually want. But you have to but you have to give yourself a chance to realize it. Right. And and so and, and I'll tell you, at 43 years old, I am still paying the consequence for decisions that I've made at 14. Right. You never think that taking that first drink or smoking that first joint or whatever it is, you never think it's going to lead to a life of alcoholism or drug addiction or early death or incarceration. If you knew that, if you had a crystal ball and you knew that was that was what was going to be your fate then I would think you would you would probably not take that first drink, right? I would advise against it. But even if you find yourself in that, that all is not lost, right? It starts with taking that first step. You take that first step and then you start to put one foot in front of the other and you make the next right choice. You don't have to see the whole staircase, as Dr. King said. Just take the first step. And then you take the next step. And, then, and eventually you'll find yourself at the top of that staircase. But you have to give yourself a fighting chance. And so, you know, I would just ask young people to not give up on themselves, start to explore and figure out what it is that you want to do in this world. And I know the, the prospects may seem bleak, but I'm telling you, as long as you give yourself a fighting chance, eventually doors will start to open. Things will start to happen. Yeah. You'll start to attract like minded people and things will start to happen. But you don't have to see it all in front of you today. But just take the first step. Yeah, I love what you say about staying in the game. Right. Life is strange. You never know what, what's going to happen. Right. Tell us about your book, Martin. I haven't read your book yet, but I'm planning to. What's it called? So it is called Prison to Purpose Pipeline. That is a, a full-length autobiography that I wrote while still incarcerated. So obviously you get, you know, you feel like you're in prison with me going through that. <laughs> <laughs> right. You've put me off now. <laughs> a little scary, right? You get to travel with me from my childhood and, 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 and everything because there was so much more I wasn't able to touch on. I mean, I had a son at 17 who passed away right before his first birthday, which further exacerbated my alcoholism. So there's a lot more 
there to, to learn about me, but then what it felt like psychologically to adapt from a life of freedom to a life of incarceration and how I was able to maximize that time and not, you know, allow that time to kind of get the better of me, but allowed me to really tap into who I am and what my calling and what my purpose is and what that looked like and the, the self discoveries that I made along the way. And then how I was able to channel that energy. And I think it's really applicable to anybody who finds themselves in a rock bottom moment or, you know, a period of grief or, or just just a really tough time. And you can you can find ways to channel that into something positive. And so I'm really proud of it. It's gotten great reviews. People uh, across the board were able to relate to it, uh, much to my surprise. I thought only people who grew up where I grew up and lived that background would be able to relate. But far, you know, that was that was far from the truth. And so it was it was great to write it. And then I wrote a second book uh, called My Prison Life, collection of blogs that that outline different aspects of prison and how prison affects family and, and communities and, and things like that. And how can we access these books, Martin? Are they on Amazon? Or? Certainly go to Amazon.com. You can also go to my website at martinlockett.com and access them there. Okay, well, I'm going to put that all in the show notes. And uh, I think we'll have to get you in the South African schools. That would be that would be <laughs> awesome. My goal is to definitely speak abroad. So why not start with the motherland, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, it's been such a pleasure, Martin. Thank you so much. Likewise. Uh, thank you, Martin. Your share is such a brave one. And it's changing and saving lives. So please keep sharing. Let's pull out some key points from that conversation. Although he grew up in a rough area, Martin was blessed with two loving parents who did their very best to keep their boys busy with after-school activities. That worked well for a while, but as they became teenagers, it was not quite so easy to manage them and they started to mix with the wrong crowd. Like most teenagers, Martin was searching for his identity, trying different ones on for size. He actually developed several identities and had the wardrobe and the vernacular to suit each one. He had his school style and then his part-time job style and then his gang style. He was navigating between different worlds and not really feeling comfortable in any of them. And this internal conflict drove him to use alcohol to quell his anxiety. Like many drinkers, Martin was in denial. He was able to convince himself that he was okay because his life was pretty functional. He had a job, he lived with his girlfriend, he paid his bills, he was studying to be a nurse. Many functioning alcoholics delude themselves in this way. I certainly did. I had a good job and a nice family, so how on earth could I be an alcoholic? The thing is, it takes a huge amount of energy to hold it all together when we're drinking. Energy to get up and go to work when we're hungover. Energy to cope with young children when we're exhausted. Energy to just keep up the pretense that everything is fine, when we know deep down that it's far from fine. And one of the many joys of sobriety is that as we free ourselves from the shackles of alcohol, we release that energy and we can use it in much more positive ways. Martin took us through the chilling tale of the New Year's Eve that changed his future, that split-second decision that cost him his freedom. He talked us through the horror of the aftermath, the horror of realising that he'd actually killed two people 
and that the price to pay would be 20 years in prison. And he was only 24 years old. He spoke of the ripple effect of this tragedy, the effect on his own family and friends, and of course of his victims' relatives. As he says, we can never really imagine the magnitude of our actions unless it actually happens. After a few days in prison, he was given a newspaper, and there he was on the front page. As he read the article, he discovered that his victims were actually active in the recovery space. His horror at what he'd done deepened as he discovered what good people they were. At the end of the article, the journalist had written, Perhaps the person who will be helped the most by this tragedy is the driver. Martin reflected on this statement for days. How on earth could he be helped by this terrible incident? For months he would meditate on that phrase, which played over and over in his head. And eventually he came to the conclusion that the only way he could try to atone for what he'd done would be to spend the rest of his life continuing the good work of his victims. That would be the only way that some good could come out of this tragedy. Just one year into his sentence, Martin had the good fortune to meet an incredible woman who offered her support. She stuck by him for more than 16 years and is now his fiancée. When he told her that he wanted to be an addiction counsellor, she discovered that he could study this from prison. She helped him with his tuition fees, and Martin also inherited some money from his father. He knew that spending this money on his own education was the best way to honour his father's memory. Martin threw himself into his studies with great enthusiasm. It actually had the added benefit that he was not approached by gang members in prison. They could see that he was serious. He gained a bachelor's degree in sociology and a master's in psychology before going through an intensive drug and alcohol addiction program. He was then able to build up his clinical hours by working as an intern in prison, running group sessions for some of his fellow prisoners. This enabled him to qualify as a counsellor. He got his state certification as a substance abuse counsellor in 2019 and he was released from prison in 2021. Martin shared the shocking statistic that 80% of prisoners are incarcerated as a result of drug or alcohol-related offences. Yet in Oregon, only 5% of those prisoners have access to a substance abuse programme. While he was in prison, Martin was influenced by the work of Viktor Frankl, which helped him to get through his sentence. Frankl is an Austrian psychiatrist who spent time in a concentration camp during the war and who maintains that however dire our circumstances, if we can just find purpose, we can survive. And that purpose must involve serving others. We talked about forgiveness and of course it took several years for Martin to forgive himself. He was often full of sadness and self-loathing, reliving every detail of the crash, especially on anniversaries. He eventually managed to pull himself out of this dark place and direct his energy towards the pledge he'd made to honour his victims by continuing their legacy. And even before leaving prison, he's made an impact on thousands of people. 
Martin talked about leaving prison at the end of his sentence and how overwhelmed he felt back in the real world. Everything had changed. Whilst prison is grey and drab, the world seemed full of colour. Clothes were different, trousers were tighter, phones were computers, social media was a thing, and there was even an online recovery movement. He struggled with choice going into a supermarket and having 30 different types of cereal to choose from. Fortunately, he had his fiancée to keep him grounded and to give him a crash course in technology. She helped him to adapt to the outside world and to remember to write down his passwords. He admitted that he'd been slightly apprehensive about being bored in the outside world as he'd never really functioned as a sober adult before. But of course it was the opposite, and he's been travelling, skydiving, cruising to the Bahamas and learning to swim, amongst other things, and of course full of joy and gratitude at his beautiful new life. But apart from having fun, Martin continues to work full-time to honour his victims and to continue their legacy. He feels compelled to keep sharing his story, to spread the word about the agony that can result from drinking and driving. He speaks at victim impact panels, mans a suicide helpline and speaks to schools. As well as being a public speaker, he's written two books, Prison to Purpose Pipeline and My Prison Life. You can buy the books from Amazon or from his website, which is martinlockett.com. I'll put it in the show notes. I told Martin about our 64% youth unemployment rate here in South Africa and asked him what he would say to a young person with no job and little hope for the future. His reply was that he advises young people to stay in the fight, even if the odds seem to be stacked against them. He says, don't give up on yourself, take steps in the right direction and eventually doors will open. He quoted Martin Luther King, who said that faith is taking that first step, even if you can't see the whole staircase. I actually love that quote and think we can apply it to people just starting out on this sobriety journey. At first, it can be so difficult to imagine that we have such a lot to gain from giving up alcohol. It actually takes faith and that's why we need to do it step by step even if we can't yet see the whole staircase. So let me end with a couple of testimonials. We asked our members for a few testimonials that we could put on our website, and we were blown away by the response. So let me say here a huge thank you to everyone who sent in a testimonial. So here is one of them from Jane in Norway. I was desperate, suicidal and lonely until I heard Janet from Tribe Sober on the radio. For the first time in my life, I had hope that I could get out of my hell. My first tentative steps were to take a few days break and I joined a 30-day challenge with a tribe of people who were going through the same. At 19 days, I did the workshop and committed myself to a 100-day break and I've never looked back. And today I celebrate 1,874 days. I took my life back because I found my tribe. They gave me the tools and the will to fight. 
I never believed that life could be like it is now and that I could love it so much and enjoy it with such peace, freedom and presence. Oh, thank you, Jane. Let's uh, have another one from Brenda in Canada. Tribe Sober membership has been so much more than I ever expected. The leaders are very experienced and personally involved with daily posts, encouragement, Zoom calls, podcasts, kickstart coursework and more. Tribe Sober offers so much more than most online recovery groups. Tribe members are active and 100% supportive, varying from being sober curious to having many years of living alcohol-free. There is something for everyone in this group. I'm so grateful for their support. Well, thank you so much, Jane and Brenda, and everyone else who sent in those lovely testimonials. If you'd like to be a member of Tribe Sober, just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. Or if you're not quite ready and you just want to dip your toe in the waters of sobriety, then why not join our Sober Sprint? It takes place from the 17th to the 21st of October and it's absolutely free. To join, just go to tribesober.com and hit Sober Sprint or just find the Sober Sprinters Facebook group and ask to join. So that's it from me, guys. I'll be back next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard, it takes courage and grit, and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain, and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.